Blog Talk Radio. Happy 4th of July. Um, that's not slowing us down. That's not stopping us. I got a full show for you. So Donald Trump was asked why we're still in Afghanistan, and his answer is abysmal. I'm going to lead with that story in just a second. Um, Donald Trump also weighs in on the issue of homelessness and serves up uh, a not-so-tasty word salad. We'll get into that as well. We also have CNN and MSNBC and every mainstream media outlet taking their claws out and going after Bernie after the debate and basically uh, saying, okay, it's over. Yeah, his campaign's over. He's not going anywhere. It's a wrap. Give it up. And then uh, as soon as they're finished saying that, two new polls come out, and perhaps you're not going to be surprised to learn that Bernie's doing well in them. (laughs) So... We'll talk about that as well, and then um, as we move along here today, we also have more discussion on Medicare for All, discussion about the detention centers at the border and what's going on over there, and um, it's everything. It's everything today. You don't want to miss it. Glenn Beck is in the show later, so a little bit of a throwback secular talk vibe in here. Always fun. So without further ado, let's get started. And uh, let me cue up a clip for you. This is going to be Donald Trump on the issue of Afghanistan and on the issue of war. He still has not stayed true to his campaign promise. Let's do it. So President Trump was asked why we're still in Afghanistan on Tucker Carlson's show. Let's see what he had to say in response.
two American servicemen killed in Afghanistan this week. How much longer do you think our troops will stay? Well, I'll tell you, uh, I've wanted to pull them out, and you know I have pulled a lot out. We were at 16,000. We're down to about 9,000, uh, which a lot of people don't know. Uh, in Syria, as you know, I've pulled most of them out. We've defeated the caliphate. Now, when you say caliphate and defeat, the caliphate's land. It's an area. We've taken back 100%. But these people, ISIS, they're stone-cold crazy, so that doesn't mean somebody's not going to walk into a store and blow up a store, which they do. Yeah. You look at China, they don't police, they don't have troops everywhere. What they have is they have people taking out the minerals out of the ground. They don't have troops. We have a case in Afghanistan where we have troops on one mountain, a very mountainous country, rough country, beautiful country actually in a lot of ways, but we have troops. And on the other mountain ridge, China's there with big excavating equipment taking out minerals. They don't have people. Now, it's pretty dangerous for them because their people tend to be shot as they're operating the machines. You know, it's not exactly the safest place. So uh, we've uh, reduced the force very substantially in Afghanistan, which uh, I don't talk about very much, and that's okay. Could you see getting out entirely? I'll tell you, the problem is, look, I would like to just get out. The problem is it, it just seems to be a lab terrorists. It seems, I call it the Harvard of terrorists. When you um, look at the World Trade Center, they were trained. Uh, they didn't, by the way, they attacked their own country. They didn't come from Iraq. All right? They came from various other countries. But they all formed in Afghanistan. And it's probably because it's at the base of so many countries. But they all formed, and it's rough mountains, and you get a lot of, you know, you get a lot of good hiding places. But I would leave very strong intelligence there. You have to watch because they do, you know, uh, okay, I'll give you a tough one. If you were in my position and a great-looking central casting, and we have great generals, a great central casting general walks up to your office, I say, we're getting out. Yes, sir, we'll get out. Yes, sir. And I said, what do you think of that? Sir, I'd rather attack them over there than attack them in our land. In other words, them coming up. That's always a very tough decision, yes. you know, with what happened with the World Trade Center, et cetera, et cetera. When they say that, you know, no matter how you feel, and you and I feel pretty much very similar, but when you're standing there and you have some really talented military people saying, I'd rather attack them over there than have them hit us over here and fight them on our land, it's something you always have to think about. Now, I would leave and will leave, we will be leaving very strong intelligence, far more than you would normally think, because it's very important, and we can do it that way too. But we have reduced the forces very substantially in Afghanistan. Oh boy, where to begin with this one? <laughs> oh God. So that's all it took? All it took was a dude who looks like he's a general in a movie to walk into the Oval Office and tell Trump, sir, we better attack them over there so they don't attack us over here. That's all it took. That same bullshit argument has been used for well over a decade. And it never made sense then, and it doesn't make sense now. And in fact, if anything, the exact opposite is true, because we know that there's this notion of blowback, which is the more we meddle over there, the more we make ourselves a target. But that's really all it took. So Trump on the campaign trail half the time was pretending to be Mr. Non-Interventionist, Mr. These wars are so stupid, let's stop them and let's rebuild our own country. 
And then now the other half of the time, he said he wanted to bomb the shit out of them, them meaning ISIS. So he was half non-interventionist, half, you know, brutal interventionist. But all it took was a general who looks like he's from a movie. So serious question here. What if the general walked into the room and he was in normal clothes? He wasn't wearing his, you know, his uniform. Would Trump uh, have been more likely to stick to his guns in that scenario and say, no, we're getting out? I mean, this guy is such a child that I honestly believe that it was part of the fact that he looked like he was from, quote, central casting, unquote, that made Trump go, well, now this is serious. He's wearing a uniform. Dude, you're the president. You're the commander in chief. Stick, stay true to what you said when you argued we should get out of Afghanistan, we should get out of Iraq, we should get out of Syria, but you're not doing it. And it's frustrating because he's trying to have his cake and eat it too, because he's also saying, well, you know, it's tough, which is why we have to stay there, but also I significantly reduced the number of troops, so give me credit for that. Wait, which is it? Is it, oh my God, we have to stay there because, you know, um, we don't want them to attack us over here, so we got to attack them over there. So do you want the credit for staying there, or do you want the credit for reducing the number of troops? If you're bragging about also reducing the number of troops, then doesn't that fly in the face of the logic of the other point, which is, hey, it's better to be over there. So then isn't reducing the number of troops by that logic also making us a bigger target? Again, I don't agree with that logic, but that's the logic being presented. So he's trying to say, he's try, again, classic Trump, say both things at once, and then hope that whoever's listening will just project onto you what they want you to believe. Now, I'm not saying that that's totally planned, because he's a jackass, but nonetheless, I think that's what's happening there. He, uh, he says both things, and then the people who are more hawkish go, man, yeah, there's Trump destroying the caliphate. That's wonderful. Some people say that, and then other people say, oh, yep, he's drawing down the troops, and that's exactly what I want. I like how everybody I'm giving this, you know, funny accent to. <laughs> they don't all sound like that. But I think that's what he's doing. Let me say both things. And then you just project onto me whatever you want me to believe. And uh, it's funny because with Tucker wasn't even trying there. If anything, I think Tucker was maybe just ever so slightly trying to prod Trump to say, yes, we're going to get out. But he ended up hanging himself with the tiny amount of rope that Tucker gave him. So it, it's, it's really sad because, seriously, we've been there 18 years in Afghanistan. What do you think is going to change? What do you think is going to change? The, orig the original reason we were supposed to go in is, oh, my God, we have to get Osama bin Laden. Well, he was in Pakistan, not Afghanistan, but he's also dead now, so mission accomplished. You can come home now. And then they just move the goalposts. Well, yeah, Osama bin Laden, but then it was also al-Qaeda. Okay, well, according to our own intelligence, there's less than 100 al-Qaeda members in Afghanistan. Mission accomplished. Come home. Then they move the goalposts again. Well, it was the Taliban who was protecting al-Qaeda after al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11, so we got to stay there to fight the Taliban. Literally, about 50% of Afghanistan is controlled by the Taliban. You want to know why? They're a guerrilla army. And by the way, they don't, they will not attack us here, and they didn't attack us here. So, you know, they're terrible, they're evil, but they're a guerrilla army. What are we going to do? That's a recipe for permanent occupation. For us to say, ah, oh, the Taliban, got to beat them. Well, if they're, they control more than 50% of the territory in Afghanistan, you ain't going to beat them. You ain't going to beat them at all. This is like a, a Vietnam-type situation where it's guerrilla warfare. 
And by the way, they control more of Afghanistan now than they did when we originally invaded. That is an abject failure. And then there's a little hint that's dropped there about maybe what this has more to do with, which is China taking minerals. So for those of you who don't know, Afghanistan has massive gargantuan mineral wealth. And what Trump's saying there is, well, China's taking some of the minerals from Afghanistan, so, like, come on, we got to stay there because we got to get some of the mineral wealth. Oh, see, this is a lot like, oh, yeah, no, 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 our other wars in the Middle East have nothing to do with oil. War, war in Iraq had nothing to do with oil, really. Well, oil production shot through the roof after our invasion and occupation. So what do you mean? It definitely was a big part of it. And in the instance of Afghanistan, because some people would say, well, they don't have oil wealth there. Yeah, but they have massive mineral wealth. So maybe that has something to do with it. And maybe, you know, it's not a coincidence that Iran and Venezuela, which are the next two countries that we're looking to try to force regime change, they are not U.S. allies, and they're also sitting on massive amounts of oil wealth. So maybe a lot of this has to do with geopolitical power and control, as well as natural resources. That's definitely a big part of it, and the other stuff is a a veneer over it of, oh, no, yeah, we're uh, fighting terrorists. In that clip, Trump catches himself because he says, oh, Afghanistan is, quote, a lab for terrorists. I call it the Harvard for terrorists. And then he goes on to say, but they didn't come from there. They came from various other countries. Oh, tell me, Don, which other countries are you referring to? Please go right ahead. Saudi Arabia. But now he's such a bitch that he doesn't even bring up Saudi Arabia as the place where these terrorists originated from. Why? Because now he's like this with them. He loves them. First of all, they're spending a massive amount of money at his own hotel, so he's getting rich. They're putting money in his pocket, and that's a form of corruption. That's a form of violating the Emoluments Clause. But second of all, we got the weapons deal. We give them so many weapons every single year. So it's a... It's really pathetic what we're watching here. It's really pathetic. And now you know, he's colossally full of shit. And no, we're not going to give you credit. He says, oh, I took down the number of troops from 16,000 to 9,000. Having 9,000 troops permanently occupying another foreign country, country that didn't attack us, That's not like, oh, do I get credit for leaving? No, because Obama did the same thing. He yo-yoed the troop levels. So did Bush. They yo-yoed the troop levels. Oh, okay, sometimes we're going to have more. Sometimes we're going to have less. Sometimes they're going to be, you know, actively involved in combat. Other times they're not. Excuse me. They're not going to be. So do I get credit for drawing them down? No. No. Leaving 9,000 troops there, we're still at war. We're still at war. So that's not pulling out of the war. Stay true to what you said on the campaign trail and get the hell out. But he's not going to do it. Even when his buddy's trying to prod him in that direction, Tucker Carlson, he doesn't say he's going to do it. Instead, he talks about how there's a, you know, a very sexy general, as Internet Hippo said on Twitter. There's a very sexy general who has convinced him simply because he's a general and he looks very official. Pretty much what you'd expect from our melting brain president.
Now let's go to when they talk about homelessness. This is um, equally terrible. So Donald Trump weighed in on the issue of homelessness on Tucker Carlson's show. This is pretty cringeworthy. Take a look. Where we are now, Osaka or Tokyo, and the cities are clean. There's no graffiti. No one going to the bathroom on the street. You don't see just very nice, isn't it? Very different from our city. Yep. Well, well and some of our cities. Some of our cities. But New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, they, they've got a major problem with very sad with filth. Very sad. Why is that? Uh, it's a phenomenon that started two years ago. It's disgraceful. I'm gonna maybe. And I'm looking at it very seriously. We're doing some other things, as you probably noticed, like some of the very important things that we're doing now. But we're looking at it very seriously because you can't do that. You can't have what's happening where police officers are getting sick just by walking the beat. I mean, they're getting actually very sick. Uh, where people are getting sick, where the people living there are living in hell, too. Although some of them have mental problems where they don't even know they're living that way. In fact, perhaps they like living that way. Uh, they can't do that. You, we cannot ruin our cities. And you have people that work in those cities. They work in office buildings, and to get into the building, they have to walk through a scene that nobody would have believed possible three years ago. And this is the liberal establishment. This is what I'm fighting. They, I don't know if they're afraid of votes. I don't know if they really believe that this should be taking place. But it's a terrible thing that's taking place, and we may be... You know, I had a situation when I first became president. We had certain areas of Washington, D.C., where that was starting to happen. And I ended it very quickly. I said, you can't do that. When we have leaders of the world coming in to see the president of the United States and they're riding down a highway, they can't be looking at that. I really believe that it hurts our country. They can't be looking at scenes like you see in Los Angeles and San Francisco. San Francisco, I own property in San Francisco, so I don't care, except it was so beautiful. And now areas that you used to think as being, you know, really something very special, you take a look at what's going on with San Francisco. It's terrible. So uh, we're looking at it very seriously. We may intercede. We may uh, do something to uh, get that whole thing cleaned up. It's inappropriate. Now, we have to take the people and do something. We have to do something. Right. And, you know, we're really not very equipped as a government to be doing that kind of work. That's not really the kind of work that the government probably should be doing. We've never had this in our lives before in our country, and it's not only those few cities, it's a couple of other cities. cities. At the same time, most of our cities are doing great, but if you look at some of these, they're usually sanctuary cities run by very liberal people, and the states are run by very liberal people. But the thing that nobody can figure out is, do these governors or mayors, do they really think this is a positive? Do they really think this is okay? Because it's not. There's a lot to break down there. Um, First of all, he said, it's a phenomenon that started two years ago. I really don't understand what he's trying to get at there. I'm trying to be fair and tap into the Trump brain and think about where he was making a connection. But he's asked directly about homelessness, and he said it's a phenomenon that started two years ago. I mean, I don't even need to mention how untrue that is because it's obvious that's not true. But I don't I think that in his own mind he wasn't he didn't interpret that as 
homelessness started two years ago. He didn't. He wasn't trying to say that, but he did end up saying that. But I don't know what he was referring to. I really don't know. <laughs> it's, homelessness is a phenomenon that started two years ago. He didn't. I don't know. I don't know. I, I have no idea what ha- was happening in his mind, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't that he was trying to say homelessness started two years ago. Your guess is just as good as mine on that one, man. But either way, it's funny how he kind of, like he definitely had dialogue with himself in his own brain and then continued the conversation with Tucker. But like you didn't say the part that was in your own head. You just jumped right to, anyway, that's insane. (laughs) It's like his brain is farting on live TV. Um, And then probably the funniest part is, where he just kind of babbles after that and says, like, we're looking at it very seriously. We're looking at it very strongly. He always says that when he's asked any question. There's a, it's a guarantee that never, probably even once in his administration, have they had a conversation about homelessness. But when he doesn't have any specifics, it's like, we're looking at that very strongly. We're looking at that very seriously. And then he says, we're doing very important things, like, you know, some of the uh, important things that I'm sure you know we're doing. <laughs> My friend, I showed my friend this uh, clip, and he was like, he sounds like a kid in class who was supposed to deliver a book report, and he didn't do the work. And so he just bullshits his way through it. That's exactly what Trump sounds like there. Um, and then he also, he blames the, quote, liberal establishment and says, these are the people that I'm fighting. It's such a hacky argument. They try to make it a partisan thing. Listen, man, yes, there are many big cities that are, run by Democrats, and they have homelessness in those cities. Also, the poorest state in the entire country is Mississippi, and it's massively conservative at every level of government. So you want to play this hacky game? Fine, we'll, we'll play it. Now, how do you respond to that? So stop trying to make it a partisan thing. I mean, of course he's going to make it a partisan thing because he's a Republican president. But still, it's just so annoying and so stupid, and uh, who cares about playing the blame game on this? Why don't we actually try to fix the problem? And then... Notice, when he talks about fixing it, it it gives you a glimpse into the mind of somebody who's on the far right, because he talks about, can you imagine being a person who works in an office building, and you have to walk through, like, basically this jungle of homeless people, and how terrible that must be. Notice who he goes immediately to to sympathize with. The people who work in the office building, presumably who have a relatively normal life. Talk to somebody who's on the left who hasn't fully dehumanized homeless people, and what will they say? Oh, can you imagine how terrible it is to be homeless, to have lost your job, lost your family, be on the street, be struggling, don't have a roof over your head? Could you imagine? Many of these people have mental health issues. Could you imagine being one of those homeless people? See, that's how you respond if you view the homeless people as human. You say, oh, my God, they must be so terrible. But Trump goes right to, okay, they're obviously not human and I can't sympathize with them, so forget them. Oh, my God, can you imagine being a guy who works in an office building who has to walk past homeless people? That shows you the mindset. The mindset is, fuck these homeless people. Already too far gone. That's, th- this kind of person should not be in control of government at any level. Um, and then finally he says, well, we have to take the people and do something. What is the something, Don? Because, of course, the fear is, you know, 
if they were to do anything, which they won't, but if they were to do anything, you know, they'd round them up and do something really cringeworthy and that violates uh, civil liberties. So, listen, I have an answer on this, and anybody who's looked into this issue closely has an answer on this. Give all of them, a, you know, a, a studio apartment. Now, it doesn't, you know, we're not saying you have to go all out and give them a big screen TV and cable and an internet connection and, you know, whatever. Uh, wonderful accoutrements. You don't, have to, you don't have to do that. You could just give them a one room, a, a studio apartment, so they have a roof over their head. And studies have shown, because they've looked into this for a long time now, studies have shown that actually saves the taxpayer money. So this is a win-win. It's a win on the left because, you know, we actually care about human beings and we don't want people to needlessly suffer. So to give people who are homeless, a, you know, a, a place to sleep at night, a place to sleep at night, to have a roof over their head, to be safe and secure, to give them that, that's a win for the left. And it's a win for the right because you end up saving the taxpayers money by giving them a roof over their head. Now, you, you know, you don't round them up and do it. It's totally voluntary. But you have some sort of a process. You have, you know, workers who can make the connection with homeless people and, and let them know that they have this as an option. And, you know, we could try as a society to help some people out and get them back on their feet because I got news for everybody. Those people out there are people. You know, some of them have mental health issues and they need help. Um, some of them are drug addicts and they need help. But either way, that option should be there. And since it saves money to put a roof over their head, and since it's the humane thing to do to put a roof over their head, this is definitely the way to go. So it's, um, but the crazy thing is we never discuss it. This is not an issue that's ever really talked about in detail because I think there's this default assumption of dehumanization. And it's a shame because what are there, 500,000, 600,000, something like that, homeless people in the country. We have like about 50,000 homeless veterans I mean, enough with the nonsense of, oh, support our troops. Well, the first thing you would do if you wanted to support our troops is, like, make sure that the ones who come back are not living on the street with no hope and no future and no job and no nothing. So, and, and it really, again, it really does show you. Listen to, what, to the way Trump talks about this. Listen to the way uh, Tucker Carlson talks about this. They really view it as just, like, like ew, gross as opposed to like, oh my God, this is like a moral issue and we should help out these people. It's more of like, just get them out of our way. Get them out of our way. That does show you the mindset. And um, it's really frustrating. It's really frustrating because you never know, like all the things that could happen in somebody's life that leads to that point where they're homeless. They could have had a really, you know, rough go of it, man. They could have gotten dealt some absolutely shitty cards. But they don't look at it as a moral issue, an ethical issue. They look at it as an inconvenience for people who work in office buildings. There you have it. Okay, next. All right, let's go to MSNBC and how they're going after Bernie Sanders. It never ends, ever, ever, ever. So CNN and MSNBC and every mainstream media outlet took their claws out and went after Bernie um, after the debate. Of course, across the board, they say he did a bad job. He faded into the background. 
And now there's like one or two polls coming out of Iowa that show him slipping. So they are using this to hammer home the message, the message that they already had waiting no matter what the outcome of the debate was. So let's take a look at one of these clips. Now, just so everybody knows, I could have picked a CNN clip. I could have picked a Fox News clip. I could have picked anything. But this one's going to be an MSNBC clip. Let's see what they're saying here about Bernie, and then I'll give you the reality. Um, it's harder to suss out some of the losers. I think Bernie uh, is a great example of a place where everyone wasn't sure what to make of his performance. I sort of thought he faded into the background. Uh, he didn't have a big standout moment. And his polls have sort of uh, faltered a little, but not monumentally. Do you think it was a replica of, of, of Bernie being Bernie? Like if, if, there's all, if there were a whole of the states for losers, the losers are like, no, no, he's not a loser, but he loses elections. He would be behaving like that. Bernie led the way. 
These other people are following, and they're following not because they even necessarily believe in it. They're following because they know that that's the path to get elected. So, so much of this is just silly. I mean, these people are paid to talk politics, and they're just making stuff up. Oh, he's an automaton. Oh, America's evolved. America's, America's evolved towards his position. They were already there, by the way. The polls show overwhelming support for the things that he's in favor of. But if anything, they've evolved more towards Bernie Sanders' position. And then they keep going with this argument now, which leads me to believe it was an actual talking point that came from higher-ups. The idea of, like, oh, he's too consistent. That's not a criticism. I know you think it is because you're silly, but that's not a criticism. Oh, my God, a politician who actually says something and means it and keeps saying it because he's trying to change the country in that direction. That's a breath of fresh air. That's not something to scoff at. Why haven't you evolved? And, by the way, there are some issues where he's gone further now. So you can say he evolved. For example, foreign policy was an issue that he had a little bit more on the back burner in 2016. Now he's putting it front and center in many ways. So it, it's just it's so frustrating. Now, they're digging his political grave. This is one clip of many clips, but people are saying, oh, my God, see, this is the end of Bernie. Bernie's imploding. By the way, every headline on new polls that came out all had, like, oh, Biden still leads but is slipping and Kamala is surging. Everyone, everyone. Now, you want to know the reality? Well, let's take a look at this from David Sirota. He lays it out in good detail. On Tuesday, Bernie 2020 announced nearly 1 million donations in the second quarter, surpassing the Trump campaign's number by over 250,000 donations. Trump's campaign touted their 725,000 individual donations online in the second quarter as integral to their campaign strategy. However, since announcing in the first quarter, Bernie Sanders has already received 1.9 million donations, eclipsing both Trump and every Democratic candidate in the primary field. Sanders' fundraising base has also shown room for significant growth as 46% of the second quarter donors were, donors were giving for the first time and 99.9% of all donors are able to contribute again. In addition to the strongest grassroots fundraising in the field, multiple national post-debate polls have shown Sanders continuing to lead Trump in general election matchups and building on a strong position in the Democratic primary. Now look at these specifics. There's a new Washington Post-ABC poll that came out. Bernie's at 23%. Now that's only six points behind Biden, who's still in first and plummeting. And he gained 12 points in two months since Biden launched his campaign. He gained 12 points since Biden launched his campaign. Sanders leads the field among voters under age 50 and has a diverse coalition, including 23% support of African-American voters. I believe that's more than he had in 2016. Reuters-Ipsos poll is another new one. Bernie's at 16%, just six points behind first, and uh, building on an Ipsos poll from April and May, and then a morning consult poll. Bernie's in second place at 19%, and following the debate, Bernie has the highest favorable ratings of any Democratic candidate. Okay, so let me explain something here. Are there some polls that show Bernie slipping in some narrow ways? Yes, I just told you, in Iowa, there's a poll or two that has him slipping. Now, is that cause for concern? Well, yes, but I would argue you should be concerned even if he's in first. (laughs) So the idea of like, hey, should this spur us to work harder and fight more and spread the word more and get more involved and donate more and try to make it so he wins? Yes! But that's always going to be my answer. You should always do that. If he's in first, if he's in last, I don't care. Work harder. Are you doing well? Great. Work harder. You're doing poor? Great. Work harder. That's it. That's my philosophy. So 
Are there some nuggets of information that you can use to cherry pick to make the opposite case that, oh my God, Bernie's uh, not doing so well right now? Sure, you can make that case, but then also you got to see the total picture, and I just told you the positives, and there are a lot of positives. So, listen, it's a long way out from the election, and the bottom line is we got to work. We got to work. But what you're seeing from mainstream media is, and I told you this a thousand times, what they do is, they push the narrative they want to push as they pretend like they're just calling balls and strikes. It's similar to the notion of push-polling. Push-polling is when you call and you ask a question, but you're not, you're not really interested in the answer. You're just asking the question and try to plant a seed in that person's mind. George W. Bush did it to John McCain back in the, what was it, the 2000 primary for the 2001 election. Wait, was it the election in 2000 or 2001? Whatever, it doesn't matter. I digress. Um, and he said... How would you feel about John McCain having fathered an illegitimate black baby? What? <laughs> now, will you send, you know, a question like that to Southern white racists? What do you think is going to happen? You know what's going to happen. They're going to turn on John McCain. And that's basically what ended up happening. So that's what a push poll is. You plant an idea as you pretend like, me, bro, I'm just asking questions. So that's what the media is doing. Oh, shit. Is Bernie's campaign done? I think Bernie's campaign might be done. Let's talk about how poorly Bernie Sanders did. Did Bernie Sanders do poorly? Oh, yeah, I think Bernie Sanders did poorly. They're cherry-picking information that they could use to try to build that case and ignoring all the data that says the exact opposite. So don't fall for their bullshit. However, I will say this. Take what they're saying and use it to spur your ass into gear. I don't know about you guys, but I'm doing a monthly contribution to Bernie. I have it on the recurring payment cycle. So, you know, get involved, man, however you can, because they're never going to treat him fairly, and we can't rely on them ever treating him fairly. But now you know the reality of the situation, and again, it's just a matter of working harder to get our man over the finish line. Okay. one more, then we'll take a quick break. I don't have my big seltzer next to me, and that's a little bit of a tragedy. So Washington Post did a fact check, fact check on Bernie Sanders, and they got absolutely roasted online for being ridiculous. So this is, this is dead serious. This is from the article. I have to show everybody. So here's the, the uh, quote from Bernie. Three people in this country own more wealth than the bottom half of America. That's what he said. Here's their response to that. This snappy talking point is based on numbers that add up. Oh, okay, so fact check over, right? <laughs> Wrong. Look what they said. But it's also a question of comparing apples to oranges. Hmm. Sanders is drawing on a 2017 report from the left-leaning Institute for Policy Studies, which said that three billionaires, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, who owns the Washington Post, and Warren Buffett, um, had total wealth of $248.5 billion compared to $245 billion for the bottom $160 million of the United States. The wealth of the three men has gone up even more since then. But people in the bottom half have essentially no wealth, as debts cancel out whatever assets they might have. 
So the comparison is not especially meaningful. We once gave Sanders three Pinocchios when he asserted that the six wealthiest people had more wealth than the half the world's population. That was an even more problematic comparison, and we said at the time it was better to focus on inequality within a country. Do you understand what they're trying to say here? How, how hard they're trying to nitpick? They're saying, well, I mean, listen, bro. You really can't say three people in the country own more wealth than the bottom half of America. Because the bottom half of America owns no wealth. Yeah, so that would mean he's correct. <laughs> somebody, made a, somebody said on Twitter, and I was laughing at the tweet for like five minutes. They said, the Washington Post argument is that Bernie's point is so true that it's false. (laughs) That's what they're trying to say. Why do you think that makes any, like, oh, yeah, but they don't have any money at all, Bernie, so gotcha. What? That would mean he's more right. (laughs) What are you doing? What are you, see, guys, listen. The way that many of these outlets use fact-checking it's not actually objective because a lot of it is interpretation of said facts. And what you're going to get from these, you know, neoliberal centrist corporate outlets is that's, that's the worldview they rep. So it's a square peg, round hole type situation. They try to find ways to work backwards to say, Okay, we concede on the actual facts, but in the interpretation of the facts, we disagree because we're going to nitpick you to death to try to say you're wrong because we don't like you and we don't agree with you. Now, they would swear up and down that that's not what they're doing, but, I mean, can you get a more obvious case of that? I mean, this is embarrassing. Twitter lit them on fire, dog. Lit them on fire because it's so obvious that they're just stodgy old centrists at the Washington Post, who are just, however they possibly can, they're just like, I don't care, shiv Bernie Sanders in the side repeatedly because we don't fucking like him. And so they write something like this, which is just a massive (laughs) self-own. The way this really should have went is, ready? So I read you the Bernie quote, and then their response is, this snappy talking point is based on numbers that add up. That's it. And then true <laughs> should, have been the, should have been the final word that was said. But no, they went on to basically shit themselves. Oh, God. This is what we're up against, guys. This is what we're up against. No matter what, they will find a way to shit on Bernie. He says the most obvious things ever, and they're like, no, because of this. And everybody's like, Well, that's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. But please, proceed. All right, let's take a break when we come back. Um, I think we might be getting through the Bernie campaign. What? You'll see what I mean. I have a clip for you. And then also I'll show you uh, the conditions at the detention centers at the border, and we'll have a conversation about that. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back.
Son of a bitch. All right, we're back, y'all. Okay. Bernie Sanders, is he listening to secular talk? That's the question. The answer, no, he's not. (laughs) But we may have the next best thing here. And you'll see what I mean in a second when I pull up the video. So one of the points that we made on this show may have gotten through to Bernie Sanders' campaign. Um, It's on the issue of Medicare for All and the framing around that. Here's Nina Turner talking about that issue versus private insurance. And for folks to think about, you're paying a private tax. So think about your health insurance, even though it comes out of your paycheck, if you're blessed enough to have a job that has health benefits, you are already paying a private tax right now, but you're paying that tax to the health insurance industry. So reimagine if then this lesser tax that gets you more of a benefit, you don't have to worry about a catastrophic incident happening to you or your family, you don't have to worry about those copays, those deductibles, the premiums. Instead, it's on the private, it's on the public side instead of the private side. So what I say to my sisters and brothers out there, you're already paying a tax. It's a private tax that enriches the CEOs of these healthcare companies, and not, and it does nothing for your quality of health. In fact, I want to add a story to this too. You know, a friend of mine was just sharing. He was just sharing this with the senator. We were just in Cincinnati, as you know, and the senator spoke to the Black Publishers Association there, and this person is in the middle, solidly in the middle class, and he was feeling ill, like severely so, and he went to the emergency room, and they did his diagnosis and everything, but before they would take it a step further, he said they came into his room with a credit card, you know, and, and, and the everything to say, I need, we need more payment. So we just diagnosed, we did a diagnostics on you. We have some test results, but before we can take this to the next level, yeah. It's going to cost you $750. And if you can't pay the $750 right now, oh, you can pay later, but we're going to charge you 10% more. In an emergency, wrap your minds around this. I didn't say a random routine appointment with your doctor. I said he went to the emergency room. He was having a medical emergency, and they paused on his treatment to tell him how much it was going to cost him today if he could afford to pull out a credit card, and if he couldn't, then he was going to be charged 10% more. All of that goes away yeah. with Medicare for All. She absolutely nailed it. Now, um, did she get that private taxes framing from me? I don't think so. I don't think so, because she's Nina Turner. It's not like she's new to these left-wing circles and these left-wing arguments No, she's been at this for a long time, and she knows what she's talking about, and she knows what she's doing. Um, But it was funny because a lot of the comments in that video were like, oh, my God, are they watching Kyle? Are they listening to Kyle? I don't don't think that Nina – I follow Nina on Twitter, and she follows me on Twitter, but she definitely on her own came up with that because it's right there. It's right there. So we all love Bernie, but yeah, Bernie's framing on that has to change, and he has to adopt Nina's framing, because that's the way to make people who aren't already on your team understand it. 
And what happened in the debate when Bernie Sanders was asked about, will you raise middle-class taxes to pay for Medicare for all, he didn't give a good answer because he kind of talked around the issue for a while and was meandering. And then finally, when he was pressed on it again, when they asked a follow-up question, he was like, well, yes, but I'm eliminating your co-pays, your deductibles, and your premium, so you'll end up paying less. Now, again, he did functionally and effectively, if you're educated on this topic, that's the same answer that Nina Turner just gave and that I advise Bernie to give. However, there are a lot of people out there who are not educated on the topic, and all the media was doing was fishing for that soundbite. They're just like, say yes, Bernie, say yes, say you're going to raise taxes on the middle class. And then when he does that, boom, that's it. And I've seen the headlines. Yahoo had a headline the other day exactly on that because that's what all these outlets were looking for. They want to try to take Bernie down, and they want to mischaracterize him in the process. And so that's what they were fishing for, and they got it. They got it, and he gave it to them. So how do you make sure that doesn't happen? It's very simple. When you're asked the question, Bernie, are you going to raise taxes on the middle class to pay for Medicare for, care for all? Here's your answer. No, because I'm eliminating private taxes, so you're saving money. Now, the only thing that people have said in response to that is, well, hold on now. Well, then they're just going to nitpick you and, and, and say you're lying, to which I say, they mischaracterize him anyway. <laughs> they always mischaracterize Bernie anyway. But more people watch the debates than watch the follow-up. And Bernie is correct, and Nina is, and I am correct, and Nina is correct. You could say it's a technicality. I don't give a fuck. It's still true. It's still true. It's a private tax. Try not paying your health insurance company and see what happens. So you know what happens. So you know what that means? It means you have to pay it. So if you have to pay it, you know what we call that? A tax. It's a tax levied by a private corporation, a for-profit private corporation. So are you going to raise taxes on the middle class to pay for Medicare for all? No, because I'm eliminating the private taxes. That's it. And then they'll press, sir, what? I don't, I don't understand, but how are you going to pay for Medicare for all? I'm going to eliminate the private taxes, and then I'm going to make sure we have public taxes that go to fund it. Where's the problem? There's no problem here. What do you mean? What are you talking about? But you're not going to raise taxes? No, because I'm eliminating the private taxes. What are you not getting? No premiums, no co-pays, no deductibles. There's an unnecessary, rapacious, for-profit middleman. They jack your money, and they put it towards overhead costs a lot of the time. They put it towards a bonus for the CEO. I'm getting rid of all that. I'm getting rid of the rapacious, for-profit middleman. I'm eliminating your private taxes. No, I'm not going to raise your taxes. I'm going to save you money. That's it. That's it. So um, Nina Turner absolutely gets it. Bernie's got to adopt that framing. You know, some would say he's simply too honest. I would just say he's not clever enough in his framing sometimes. He's an old swashbuckling leftist, man. So when he gets out there, he's like, oh, I'm just going to give you the straight dope. I'm Bernie Sanders. But you have to be clever, man. You have to be clever because it's not just about preaching to the choir. It's also about expanding. And the way you expand is to frame these things in a clever way where you're still correct. Nobody's lying here. We're telling the truth. But it gives it to people in a way where they can digest it. And they go, oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, exactly. So great job from Nina Turner there. Um, that's the framing we need. There's a few other areas where Bernie needs to clean up a little bit, but we're certainly working in the right direction.
Now let's talk about the border situation. This is not pretty. So the conditions at the migrant detention centers at the border are pretty disturbing. We just got some photos coming out of there that I'm going to show you in a second. Um, there were a few scandals that recently happened on this issue. The other one which made news probably equally as much is that Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and a few other politicians visited uh, one of these detention centers. And apparently it is, the conditions in there are horrific, but also the way they were treated by the uh, border protection agents was abysmal. And, you know, ProPublica broke a story about how there's this Customs and Border Protection Facebook group with 9,500 members. Now, I think all of Border Protection is 20,000 people. And in this group, like half of Customs and Border Protection, they're all members of it. And what they were saying in there was really jarring because, you know, if you're uh, an average American and you think of Customs and Border Protection, and again, you're apolitical, you don't follow this stuff on a regular basis, what do you think of? You know, what I would think of is, Serious people doing a serious job, uh, following the book, you know, going by the book. Hey, this is how we treat people. These are their rights. This is the process we go through. You know, it's at a bare minimum, you treat people with basic human dignity. Um, but no, in this Customs and Border Protection group, they're, you know, it's all fucking pro-Trump, rah-rah shit, which on its own, I guess you could say is fine, but that is a little bit of a red flag. But they're also posting pictures, like, going after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and making lewd comments about her. And it, they somebody posted a picture of her blowing a fucking, um, I guess, an immigrant who was there. And then another one where she's blowing Trump or whatever. Like, not these are not professionals who are serious, who are going by the book and are doing their jobs with honor. These are people who are like fucking childish juveniles who have control over other human beings' lives when they cross the border, and they're acting in, like, a, a really terrible way. It doesn't reflect well on their character. Now, listen, if, you're, if you work in an office and you have a, you know, whatever, a Facebook group that you guys are on and you fuck around, well, that's fine. You're not directly in charge of controlling people's lives when they cross the border into this country. I mean, you need to be a serious person who's going to follow basic guidelines and treat people with dignity in a situation like this. And it's obvious that that's not the case, that it's actually a highly, highly, highly politicized environment. And they fully dehumanize not just the people um, who have crossed the border, but also any congresspeople who stand up and support immigrants. They think like, well, fuck them. You know, they're one of the bad guys. So I, I recommend, I'll leave it in the video description box. The, I don't want to get into all the details of it, but that ProPublica um, expose was really eye-opening because it really does show you that a lot of people are suckers and they just see, oh, the person's wearing a uniform. They must be serious. Well, no, it turns out behind those uniforms sometimes are, not only is it real people, it's fucking emotionally stunted <laughs> juveniles 
who haven't grown up and who are really vicious. So I'll leave the ProPublica article in the video description box. But okay, putting that aside, look at what's happening in these migrant detention centers. These were pictures that were taken. Somebody snuck in a camera to take these pictures because they tried to take away um, the cell phones from all the elected officials who toured these facilities. By the way, that right there is a red flag. What? What do you mean? I'm going to take your, you're not allowed to take pictures of this place. Why? What? What are you talking about? You're not allowed to take pictures. What kind of shit is that? These are, these, by the way, these people are above you in rank. They're elected representatives. You're a border patrol official. The idea that you could lay down some rules for them, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And this is funded by tax money. What do you mean? Take their cell phones right away. I was like, what? Are you, what? what do you mean take their cell phones? What are you talking about? That's insanity. So one of them snuck in a cell phone, thank God, and took some pictures. Look at this. So this one is 51 women held in a 40-person capacity cell and 71 adult males held in a cell meant for 41. So there's two separate pictures there back-to-back. I mean, look at those pictures. Those are actually super disturbing. Um, Let me show you the next one here. People, like, laying all over the ground, just kind of waiting to see what happens from here. Um, Obviously, very disturbing conditions. And then I think this next one I'm going to show you is the worst. They're in, like, a caged area, and there's so many of them. Now, some of the people in this place, according to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, They hadn't showered in weeks, and in fact, they only started letting people shower as soon as the Border Patrol officials heard, oh, some Congress people are going to come tour the facility soon. That's when they started letting people shower. Before that, they were just, like, in many instances, these people are only supposed to be in these facilities for, like, 60 hours, and they're there for, like, 60 days. So, definitely not clean being neglected in terms of having doctors, you know, take care of them if there are problems, which is why we've seen many deaths at these facilities. And um, women even claim that they had to drink from the toilet bowl. Apparently, one of the faucets was broken in one of these holding rooms, and when they asked the guards, like, hey, could I have some water? They said the toilet's right there. Listen, the whole point of me doing this segment is simply to say, we don't have to do this. I mean, come on. Even if you're somebody who is uh, conservative and you're conservative on the issue of the border, whatever. Take those beliefs and, and keep them. I don't care. Do you really think that in the process of dealing with migrant flow into this country, that this is the way it should be dealt with? Do you think that this is how it should be dealt with? Because my answer is hell no. Hell no. I mean, this is, we're obviously treating people like garbage here. And I know good people on the right will just say, well, then you don't come in the country. But that's not reality. We don't live in that world. We live in a world where people do try to get into the country. So now you have to deal with the world as it exists. And that's one of the things that happens.
So then what do you do? Grandfather that into your thinking for just a split second. People are going to come in the country. Then what? Then what do we do? How should we handle it? Now, there's some people who say, well, just don't, just let everybody go. That's what I would call a far left position. But put that position aside for a second. What would you say we do? Have some facilities to deal with the flow and have a process, but should the facilities look like this? Is this how they should, how people should be treated at these facilities? There was a big firestorm a week or two ago because people, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez called them concentration camps. And there was this massive backlash because people were like, well, little strong, isn't it? Like to use those words. And, you know, they, their response is, well, we got you on a technicality because they are technically that. But I get it. I get the concerns of like, well, you're equating this to the worst monsters in human history, the Nazis, and you're going too far. This is not that bad. So I get that response. But put all the terms aside. I don't care about arguing over semantics. I, all I care about is this fundamental question. Do you think the way things are functioning right now is the way that they should function? Or do you think we should have people who have these jobs, Customs and Border Protection, they should be fucking professionals. They shouldn't be juvenile children joking about fucking AOC blowing migrants. They shouldn't be emotionally stunted. They shouldn't be incredibly callous and indifferent and fully dehumanize the people crossing the border. That's the bare minimum to ask for these people to have basic human decency and to follow guidelines. That's not too much to ask for. And in terms of these facilities, well, what do you think should happen with these facilities? How should they function? Should they look like something out of a fucking... I mean, honestly, <laughs> you hate to say it, but it's true. It looks like something out of some sort of Holocaust movie. It does, with the, the way they're held. Sorry, I'm not saying it's, it's as bad as that. What I am saying is the images that are coming out of there look really terrible. So is this how it should be, or should we improve it? I'm asking. Because in my opinion, the answer is simple. You should have professionals who are dealing with the flow of migrants, people who have their backgrounds vetted, you know they're professionals, you know they'll treat people with human dignity, you know they'll follow guidelines. And then also you should make these facilities much better than they are right now. Because what we're doing is really ugly. This is some ugly stuff, man, and this isn't right. And again, even if you're somebody who's inclined to be more conservative on the issue of the border, I think even you can look at these, at what's happening and say, this goes too far. This goes too far. We're the United States of America. We don't have to treat people like absolute garbage. You can let people see a doctor when they cross the border. That's okay. You can make sure people drink and, and have some decent food and can shower. Okay? And you can have rules. You can have a process in place. You can, you know, have these cases go by where it's determined whether or not certain people, are you actually seeking asylum or are you not? Are you somebody who we should be concerned about and there should be a deportation process? Or are, somebody, are you somebody who can come in the country? All those, I think, are legitimate questions. You can have those questions, and you can also acknowledge that what's happening at the border right now is really ugly stuff. And the final point I'll make is this. It's about partisanship. A lot of people are frustrated because it's not like 
a lot of this stuff didn't exist under the previous administration. It did. But people just didn't talk about it, and they didn't care. Because they felt, well, it's a Democratic president, and a Democratic president, they're one of the good guys, so we're not going to look too deeply into these things. Well, that's a problem. You actually should care about these things from a principled perspective, which means you're upset if it's happening under Democrats or Republicans. And that's the frustration a lot of people have, is they think, like, well, why now? Why now are you so concerned? Why now are you calling them concentration camps? Were they concentration camps before under Obama? But we need to be careful that those arguments also don't override the fact of of reality, which is this is ugly and we need to fix this. In other words, don't use the whataboutism to then drag our feet and change nothing ever. You can make the point hey, you guys were silent when it was the previous administration, while also saying, but that's in the past. Today we're here in this administration, and we need to fix this ASAP. Because there's, everybody's annoying on this for that reason. Sometimes the what about Obama people just use that, and then it's like, leads to indifference and leads to dragging your feet and leads to not being morally outraged now. Well, that's stupid. And then there's other people who only care about it under Trump, didn't care about it under Obama, and they're pretending like it all started under Trump, and that's not true either, and that's annoying. But put all that aside, what we should all agree on is this is bad, and we should change it. The details, we're going to disagree on the details. There are going to be people who say, let everybody go, and then there's going to be people who say, No, you should still have a process, and you should still have facilities, but the facility should treat people with basic human dignity. Let's have that debate, but let's make sure that we all agree on the basic thing, which is these pictures don't represent the United States of America, and they shouldn't represent the United States of America. And if you do think that they represent the United States of America, and they should, well, then just come to terms with the fact that you're a vicious far-right wing authoritarian. That's what you are. You can have that position. Hey, take the position. Everything's hunky-dory right now. Okay. But then you're a vicious far-right authoritarian. That's what you are. Because that's what these policies reflect. So that's where I'm at on this issue. But it's really disheartening and it's really sad to see. And we definitely should take immediate action. And I don't think it's too much to ask to, at the very least, make sure Customs and Border Protection are decent human beings who will follow rules and who will treat people with human dignity and take these facilities and make them function properly. Make them not incredibly abysmal where they look like something out of a horror movie. I don't think that's too much to ask for, but unfortunately in today's polarized day and age, it might be. All right, let's talk about Joe Biden. Handsy Uncle Joseph, here he is. So this next story is a fascinating report from Politico, and it is a giant red flag. A fundraiser for Joe Biden's 2020 campaign said he is no longer supporting the former vice president's White House bid and predicted that others may follow suit. Tom McInerney... I don't know if that's how you say it. The San Francisco-based attorney 
who was a lead bundler for former President Barack Obama, told CNBC he informed Biden's team of his decision on June 20th. The news of his break comes one day after Biden delivered an uneven debate performance that provoked new doubts about his candidacy and turned the spotlight back on his controversial statements about, or excuse me, his controversial statements and past policy positions on civil rights and abortion. Quote, I had actually let the campaign know I pulled back my support of Biden for now. McInerney told the cable network, adding, I don't think he did well last night, and in a potentially troubling time for Biden, McInerney predicted that others were likely souring on the Democratic frontrunner. Quote, I would imagine I'm not alone, he said. So this is the double whammy for Hansy Uncle Joseph, because... Not only did he do poorly in the debate, not only did he implode by 10 percentage points, but now when you lose the fundraisers, that's game, set, match, my dude. That's game, set, match. I predicted early on, as soon as Joe Biden launched and all, all the articles were sucking him off and all the polls had him with a giant lead, and everybody was acting like he was inevitable, I came out on this show, and what did I tell you? No way. No way. He's going to implode. He's going to do poorly. There's no way he wins the nomination. In fact, I predicted he'd be in third or worse by the time we get to the Iowa caucus. That's the truth. I think that's still going to be the case. And what I said is coming to fruition. Drop 10 points into the debate had a terrible showing, and now fundraisers are leaving. And that really is checkmate, because a guy like Biden, his campaign would have simply been propped up by big donors anyway. The whole, the whole reason he's even somewhat viable is that he's got so much money given to him by you know, CEOs and billionaires and corporate heads and you know, people in the cocktail circuit. That's the only reason why he would even be somewhat legit is that he can he was the vice president, he has high ra- name recognition, and he could just use that money to flood the airwaves and get his message out there more. So that was the main reason why he was still even hanging on for dear life. But now when you see one donor go, and by the way, this article was in Politico, which also means that Politico is an outlet that's beloved by those high-income folks. They see this article, then it's a snowball effect, and then it's, you know, good night to Biden 2020. So, it's happening. It's all happening. But I did not expect the donors to flee this early. But they're, they're on the way out, because that debate performance was just that bad. So, yes, here I am patting myself on the back, because I called it. And, um, again, the thing that's so annoying about these predictions is that when they finally happen, everybody turns around and goes, well, that was obvious. Well, you were saying the opposite. What do you mean? <laughs> I was like one of the only people who was saying, no, he's going to implode. He's going to do terrible. So it's a little frustrating because it's not as remembered because then everybody turns around and acts like it was inevitable, even though they were saying the opposite. <laughs> so, yes, I have to do these segments and pat myself on the back because nobody else will do it for me.
All right, let's cover Glenn Beck because he brought up Justice Democrats, which is honestly so much fun. And um, really brought a smile on my face. So Glenn Beck mentioned Justice Democrats on his radio show. This is great for so many reasons. Take a look. Well, you have Justice Democrats. Did you see who Justice Democrats just got elected in New York? It was uh, uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, and that's she's that long from ago. Brooklyn, right? Uh, Bronx, Queens? Queens, Queens, Queens. That's yeah. right, Queens. Mm-hmm. So they just got another person elected in Queens. Mm. Uh, and this one's great. Now, Justice Democrats are the ones who got Ocasio-Cortez uh, elected. Mm-hmm. They put out, this is all verified, um, they put out a, basically a casting call looking for somebody that could run for Congress. Ocasio-Cortez, this is all in her documentary, mm-hmm. Ocasio-Cortez's brother says, oh, my sister would be great, so she convinced her to go to talk to Justice Democrats. They look at all these people, interview all these people, and they pick Ocasio-Cortez, and then they run her campaign, and they are the ones that were behind it. Okay, she's a she's a shill. It didn't start with her. It started with Justice Democrats, and they went for a casting goal. Well, I've done another one. This time for the uh, district attorney's office. Look at the framing on that. Look at the framing. He called it a casting call, and he said she's a shill. Okay, Glenn, sit down. Listen up, fella, because I'm a co-founder of Justice Democrats. Let me explain something to you. What we did is how politics should function in this country. We didn't do a casting call. We didn't call it a casting call. You know what we did? We came, I came out here, and Jenk from the Young Turks went on his show, and we said very simply, hey, we want regular people to run for Congress. Because we want regular people to represent us in Congress. Here's what we stand for, and we gave the list. It was getting money out of politics. It was um, Medicare for all, free college, a living wage, ending the wars, um, an infrastructure deal, legalizing marijuana, freeing nonviolent drug offenders. We gave a list of things that represent a left-wing philosophy, a social democratic philosophy, This is what we wanted to create. We wanted to make it so that the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party overtook the Democratic Party, kicked out the centrists and the neoliberals, and we had a party that actually represented the people. Now, you don't have to agree with our ideology, and obviously you don't. But what we were doing was getting regular people to run for office. It wasn't a casting call. She wasn't a shill. No, we said, hey, we think regular people should run the country, And here's what we believe in. If you also believe in these things, sign up. Reach out to us. And then there was a process by which um, Justice Democrats determined who the best candidates would be. Now, I was not hands-on in that, uh, you know, process because I was a co-founder of Justice Democrats. And outside of being a co-founder, I wrote the platform. And then also, you know, basically Jenk and I are the marketing arm of Justice Democrats. We're... We have large audiences, and we tell everybody, hey, this is what we're about. This is what we're fighting for. You should get involved. So, but his framing on it, notice how they try to make it seem so much more nefarious than it. It's a casting call. They want you to think, like, 
there's these, like, George Soros puppet master behind the scenes, like, Mwahaha, I will get people to do my bidding, where's my casting call, yeah, where are my shields, yeah. <laughs> but no, it's not like that. I'm a regular dude with a YouTube channel. <laughs> That's all it is, dog. I'm a regular dude with a YouTube channel who likes social democracy and likes Bernie Sanders' campaign. And so we started something. It's like they try to portray it as this super nefarious, corrupt thing, when in reality, it's the exact opposite. There's not a hint of corruption. Our candidates make a point. You can only be a justice Democrat if you take no corporate PAC money. So the whole point is the opposite of what he makes it out to be. The whole point was, let's get regular people to run and actually fight for the people. And he spins it as, it was a casting call, and there are like these puppet masters who are finding shills for their nefarious agenda. That right there sums up right-wing media. The way they spin things, the way they tarnish things, the way they try to portray it, is the exact opposite of the reality of the situation. And you all know because you all were along for the ride. So keep that in mind when determining who's telling you the truth and who's not. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, um, I'm going to expose the frauds at Fox News for you. And then we have a new, a new poll on Medicare for All, and Kamala Harris weighs in on the issue of Israel. You don't want to miss any of these segments. Stay right there.
on, we back. We are back. So you want to see how quickly Fox News will flip on an issue to defend their team? Don't answer that question, because you're going to see it even if you don't want to see it. <clears throat> okay, here we go. I love this next clip because it exposes the absolute frauds at Fox News. Um, who was it? Was it now this that put this together? Whatever, I don't remember. Here they are with their takes on diplomacy and negotiation under Obama and then also now under Trump. Would you, as president, meet with the leaders of a country like North Korea? Obama extraordinarily said, I'd meet with him. Senator Obama made his intentions crystal clear on the campaign trail. I will meet, not just with our friends, but with our enemies. President Obama likes talking to dictators. He would meet with some of these madmen without any preconditions. You know, I'm going to reach out to these crazy people uh, around the world and try to get things done. I think that's a mistake. Obama is bowing and scraping before dictators. What is Team Obama doing establishing formal contacts with these people? A remarkable turnaround in relations between two historic adversaries. The commander-in-chief's leadership is now leading to a major foreign policy breakthrough. Another stunning Donald Trump breakthrough. President Trump scoring a big win. It's time to celebrate a great victory when it happens. President Trump proves the experts wrong again and scores a stunning diplomatic triumph. How about this? The fact that all he wants is to get them back to the table as a precondition. Sure. Not, I'll give up. If you give up your nuclear weapons, then we'll talk. Why would the administration think that this is a group they could do business with? Uh, you know, I have no idea. Those who hate us will always hate us. And the hatred for America is never going to go away. It is a definite win for the president. And it's a huge win for this country. It's breathtaking. It's audacious. It's bold. Uh, it will be historic. I'm just about it. Magnificent for the people of Korea. Magnificent for the world. Obama would personally negotiate with leaders of terrorist nations like Iran and North Korea without preconditions. Wow. The world would probably be a little bit safer. The media should be giving President Trump credit for that. I'm not sure there's any real discussing issues with Kim Jong-un. He may be the one president who would actually do this, who would go meet with North Korea. Look, it's a bad idea for the president to speak to Kim Jong-un. Why wait till the end of May? Let's do this by the end of March. The current president truly believes that he's the chosen one, cannot deal with criticism. We are really in danger of living in a sort of pretty little dream world where Barack Obama thinks the power of his personality is going to have this incredible transformative impact. Okay, and he's okay, okay, President Trump made the decision himself to meet face-to-face with Kim Jong-un. This guy has a very unique quality of leadership. He is so charming. He can deal with people. He can get along with people. I think that this will only work out well. The idea, which has been fanciful from the start, that we could talk North Korea out of its nuclear weapons program. You cannot make such a promise, not when you're dealing with these madmen who do want to destroy America. Is he going to stop on his way in Oslo to get the Nobel Peace Prize? If it works, he should get the Nobel Peace Prize. It would be something you give that man the Nobel Prize. There's no question. But let's be, I mean, the chances of that are right around zero, I think. Will always be fair and balanced. Would not the left wing destroy Trump media?
from corruption, this stuff, I think, is one of the main reasons why people hate politics. There's a lot of regular people who are apolitical because they think they're all bullshitters, they're all liars. I'm not interested in what anybody's saying because they're all snake oil salesmen. Well, when you see a video like that, it's hard to deny because these are people who, under the Obama administration, the idea of diplomacy and negotiation with official state bad guys was inconceivable to them. Inconceivable. Because they think like, ugh, what do you mean? Like, there's no negotiating with these people. Running a terror state, a rogue state, can't get through to them. Logic and reason doesn't apply. Why would you waste your time? Why would you appease them? You're appeasing them. It's weakness, fundamental weakness. And then under Trump, he does the same thing. It's like, yes, give him the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, glorious one, yes. Pick a position, whichever you think is the most reasonable, and stick with it. If you think that always talking to bad guys is terrible and you're appeasing, okay. But have that take under Democratic and Republican administration. If you have the correct position of let's not be idiots and let's try to not go to war and let's talk with people, including our enemies, then okay, have that position under Democrats and Republicans. I'm so sick of the just rank tribal flip-flopping. It's so disgusting. Um, That clip largely speaks for itself, so I don't need to say too much here, but I do have to touch on the idea of giving Trump the Nobel Peace Prize. All those people who were like, yes, he should get the Nobel Peace Prize. All those people are the same people who slammed Obama getting a Nobel Peace Prize. Now, I never wanted Obama to get a Nobel Peace Prize because there's this rule in politics. I call it the Kyle rule. If you've ever ordered a drone strike, you're not allowed to get the Nobel Peace Prize. I know, radical. <laughs> uh, what, a, what a crazy idea that is. You want to know why? Because there's a lot of people out there. In fact, the overwhelming majority of, pe- of people in the world have not ordered a drone strike <laughs> and have not killed civilians in the process. Obama did that, and Trump has done that. So no Nobel Peace Prize for anybody who's ordered a drone strike, anybody who's overseeing wars, which obviously Obama did and now Trump is doing. But they hated Obama getting a Nobel Peace Prize, and now they love the idea of Trump getting one. But he did the same shit that you argued, which is why Obama shouldn't have got a Nobel Peace Prize. These guys are such hacks, man. Keep this video in mind whenever anybody tries to tell you Fox News is serious. They are just not serious. And now you know, because you've seen it firsthand, they're not issues-oriented. But I don't even think I needed to say that. You knew before I even showed you the clip. All right, let's talk about Medicare for all. We got a new poll, and it has some interesting, interesting, interesting findings. So Morning Consult commissioned a poll on health care, and honestly, I think it's the most important one that we've seen to date. So take a look at this. Majority of voters support phasing out private plans if they can keep their providers. Percent of voters who would support, and then you see the options there, Medicare for all, A Medicare for All system that diminishes the role of private insurers, a Medicare for All system that diminishes the role of private insurers, but allows you to keep your doctor in hospital. So let's look at the numbers here. All voters, 53% of all voters support Medicare for All. 
when they're told that that diminishes the role of private insurers, that number drops to 46%. But then when they're told, okay, it diminishes the role of private insurers, but it allows you to keep your doctors and your hospital, it goes back up to 55%, even more popular than when you just said it was Medicare for all. Democrats, 77% support Medicare for all, 68% support it, even diminishing private insurers, 78% support it, diminishing private insurers, but you keep your doctor and your hospital, and then independents, you can see here, 50% um, support, 42% when you say diminishes private insurers, 56% um, diminishes private insurers, but you can keep your doctor and your hospital. And then Republicans, this uh, issue has now been severely politicized, so their support has dropped massively. But there are a few polls out there from a few months ago which have over 50% support for Medicare for All from Republicans. So as usual, the gut instinct is better, and then once the uh, you know, propaganda merchants go into overdrive, it impacts the Republicans because you know, they're glued to Fox News for the most part. But this is interesting because what does it show you? It shows you that you always need to explain your position, which is why framing is so incredibly important because you can get the same position to have an 80% approval rating or a 40% approval rating depending on how you say it, depending on how you pitch it. So one of the most important things that the left has to say, and it's true under Medicare for All, is exactly what's laid out here. You can keep your doctor, you can keep your hospital, period. We're getting rid of the predatory for-profit middleman, the private insurance company. Now, having said that, I'm also a big proponent of letting people know, hey, we're not totally banning private insurance. If you want supplemental private insurance, you can get it. So if you want something extra, you can get it. But Medicare for All does cover everything, and we are getting rid of the predatory, rapacious, middleman that's ripping you off and price gouging you. But that's the reality. The reality is 95% of the insurance companies as they exist right now are not going to exist under Medicare for All system because they're predatory and they're price gouging and they'd be uh, you know, providing duplicative care. So stuff that's already covered and already covered for cheaper, they step in and they want to fill the gap, but there is no gap. And also you're just doing it and then marking it up. So you're just ripping people off so there's no role for that. But when you tell people we're going to get rid of the uh, for-profit rapacious middleman and you can keep your doctor in hospital, they love it. So, you know, my whole approach to it is the entire thing is you say that and then you also say you can get supplemental private and we're good. And I think that that framing is a guaranteed winner because it's even a winner when you don't say the supplemental private insurance part because the numbers show it. But it does make clear this. Everybody who, because there are some people out there now, even though the Bernie bill doesn't do this, there are some people out there now on the left, who I disagree with, by the way, who say, no, I don't even want a supplemental private insurance option. We need to totally ban supplemental. Okay, okay. Again, I don't agree with that, but if you do agree with that, every single time you mention that you're abolishing private insurance, you have to say, you keep your doctor and you keep your hospital immediately. <laughs> immediately because if you don't say that your position is not underwater but close to underwater so just keep that in mind how you market these things is everything in terms of whether or not we will actually get it passed 
and whether or not it can withstand an onslaught of propaganda from the other side. went on Fox Business and ran circles around the host. I love this. I love it when this guy goes on Fox News. So this clip that I'm about to show you is like two weeks old or so, I think, but I had to show it to you. This is Ro Khanna running circles around Maria Bartiromo on a variety of issues, most importantly, Medicare for All. Check it out. differentiate himself in this crowded field Wednesday night? I think of three policies. One, Bernie Sanders needs to make it clear that he is not going to get us into more unconstitutional wars. He's not going to spend trillions of dollars in the Middle East and overseas. He's going to invest in this country. Second, he needs to make it clear that he's always stood up for bad trade deals, trade deals uh, that have really led to deindustrialization, and he's going to invest again in rural America and invest again in manufacturing in this country and raising worker wages. And third, I would say that he should talk about uh, the support he has in the Midwest, uh, how well he's done uh, in the heartland of this country and why he's going to be a successful candidate against the president. Well, one of his main policies has been Medicare for all. How can you justify eliminating the current 180 million people who are currently getting their insurance from the private sector uh, because, of course, Medicare for all wipes that out? Well, his bill actually doesn't do that. It says that you can have private insurance, but it has to be supplemental. So what his bill says is everyone gets basic Medicare. Uh, you get basic health care, including dental and vision. It's going to cost you less. If you're not happy with it and you want more, you can still go keep your insurance company. But his bill is basically saying that the government has an obligation to provide people with basic health care. It will reduce premiums and increase benefits. And by the way, President Trump was for it in 2000. He, in his book, The America We Deserve, said that a single-payer system is the best way to get health care to, to people. Do you think the, the, the country is, is ready for some of these policies which appear socialist? Well, I, I'm a progressive capitalist. I represent Silicon Valley. We have some of the most economic growth. Uh, and I think what Bernie Sanders is talking about in terms of investing in people's health care and education is what we need to compete with China and prepare for the 21st century. I think we have to start investing in our people again. He does such a great job of neutralizing criticism from the right specifically because of that last part that he threw in there, which is true in the case of Ro Khanna. He says, I'm a progressive capitalist. Now, I know many people who listen to this show are to the left of Ro Khanna and are democratic socialists, for example. But even if you disagree with Ro Khanna, you have to respect the ability of him because of that ideology that he has and where he sits on the political spectrum, his ability to neutralize the criticism from the right because, in part, he speaks their language. So what did he just say at the end there? Well, listen, forget, you know, oh, this policy appears socialist. Forget that. What do you think helps businesses getting health care off of their back? So we can compete better in a global economy if that's one, one of the things that businesses don't have to worry about. Because it's true. That's a very big cost for a lot of businesses. If you have employer 
sponsored insurance, that's a huge cost for them. Why do you think they want to shoulder that burden? No, that's a pain in the ass. What if we just took health care off the table completely? That would help business, right? Most certainly would. So what he does such a great job of doing is he can speak that language. He can speak the language of Maria Bartiromo and CNBC and Fox Business Network. And he can explain to them, no, 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 even on your own terms, this is silly. So let me break this down for you. I absolutely love it. I like when Maria Bartiromo asks, is the country ready for this policy, which appears socialist? The polls show, at least according to some polls, 70% of the country supports Medicare for all. I believe that is the definition of ready. I believe once you eclipse that 50% number, we're talking about ready, because that is a majority of people, and in this case, an overwhelming majority of people. So where's the question? Where's the question? Um, And then I like that he brought up these three super important issues, because I do think that that's a winning formula, winning strategy for an election. So he says, well, she says, what things uh, can he focus on to differentiate himself? First of all, end the offensive wars, the illegal wars, and reinvest here at home. That's giant, and that issue sells better than many people in Washington, D.C. think it does. Um, that, and that will differentiate him because Bernie would be one of two candidates who's arguing for that position and really sets him apart. The second thing he says is focus on trade deals and the deindustrialization of America and how we're going to go in the other direction. And, you know, we do an infrastructure deal. We do a Green New Deal, and we make it so that um, we bring jobs back to this country. An- another thing that's huge and that sells everywhere. And then finally, he says Medicare for all. And my favorite part is, and I don't know why Democrats don't do this more often, is what Ro Khanna brought up about Trump there. Because you know that they have a Pavlovian response when you bring up Trump and that their default position is let's defend daddy. So if you know that that's the case, well, then why would you as a lefty not say, hey, man, your God Emperor King supported this. So what, are you going to disagree with that person? By all means, it's your God Emperor King, not mine. So go right ahead. So I love the framing from Ro Khanna there. Um, It works. It absolutely works. So people should take notes because this is how you do it. All right, let's do two more, and then we'll call it a day, and everybody can go enjoy their July 4th, if you're not already doing it right now. Let me show you the Kamala Harris video. So Kamala Harris spoke to the New York Times, and uh, she has some thoughts on Israel for us. Look out. friends in that region and that we should um, understand the shared values and priorities that we have as a democracy and, um, and, and conduct foreign policy in a way that is consistent with understanding the alignment between the American people and the people of Israel. Does Israel meet your you know, meet human rights standards to your personal satisfaction? Well, talk in more detail. What specifically are you referring to? As, as a country overall in terms of how they... Overall, yes. She knew that answer was bullshit, she, which is why she was like, oh, what are you referring to? Oh, God, you know what he's referring to. He's talking about the illegal occupation. He's talking about the settlements. He's talking about um, the ruthless treatment of Palestinians. 
come on, what are you doing? What are you talking? Gaza is an open-air prison. There's uh, West Bank settlement expansion on a regular basis. What are you doing? Why would you? Oh, God. There you have it. I mean, I don't really need to add much commentary to this because she said it all right there. Her position is crystal clear. I love the, well, they're a democracy, and we're a democracy, so we're linked. They are functioning in part as an apartheid state, and that's politically incorrect, and you're not allowed to say it, but it's totally true. So for her to just casually brush that aside shows you how serious she is and what her moral concerns are and her ethical concerns are. They're non-existent. She's playing the political game that people play in the United States of America to try to get ahead. But uh, I got bad news for her. This is on video, and we can see it, and we know you're full of shit. Okay, so everybody out there, because Kamala Harris is doing her best Bernie Sanders impression trying to, you know, win this election, but there are massive differences. Now, I'm not saying Bernie Sanders is perfect on Israel. He most certainly is not. He doesn't support BDS, for example. Um, But Bernie Sanders also has very strong condemnations of Netanyahu and the settlements and uh, the Israeli government in general, and certainly more than Kamala Harris has ever had. And that does count for something. They are not equal on this issue, not even close. So you see, there are moments of honesty from Kamala Harris. She also spoke at APAC years back, and it was exactly as terrible as you would expect. You know, they'll look the other way to uh, human rights abuses all day long. And that's unacceptable. In the year 2019, to turn away from these obvious human rights abuses at a time when, by the way, the polls among the Democratic base are completely shifting on this issue. In other words, the Democratic base is much more sympathetic to the plight of Palestinians at this point because they're tired of the doublespeak coming out of Israel and the the victim game they play where they always try to pretend like they're the victim when they have all the weapons and they have all the money and Palestinians are living in terrible circumstances. So there you have it. Kamala Harris, uh, let her views be known, and you can react accordingly. By the way, why this is so important is it shows you that she's unlikely to change anything. That's why this is important. It's incredibly important because do you think Kamala Harris is going to stop the weapons deal? Or is going to stop the subsidies and the flow of money there? Or do you think she's very likely to continue everything as it is? I think I know the answer to that. Do you? I mean, the strongest condemnation we got was under Obama, the U.S. abstained from a a vote that criticized Israel over the illegal settlements. So in other words, usually the U.S. would flat out be against any condemnation of Israel for illegal settlements. They didn't even support condemning them. All they did was abstain and say, we'll let the vote go through and the rest of the U.N. kind of saying it was a toothless resolution, but the rest of the U.N. was condemning Israel for illegal settlements, and Obama took a hands-off approach. That's the strongest condemnation we've had in decades. Now, do you think Kamala Harris is going to go further than that at all? No. She's not going to use economic power to try to make them do the right thing. 
She's going to keep business as usual going, and that's the problem. All right, final story. We got another uh, deconversion from right-wing media, also known as a story that makes me incredibly happy. Here we go. So I have another feel-good story for everybody about left-wing media doing some good. Uh, Take a look at another clip from our friend David Pakman, and somebody called into his show and said this. Uh, Let's go next to our caller from the 917 area code. Who's calling today from 917? Hello, David. Yes, that's you. Hi, uh, this is uh, Justin from Brooklyn. Hey, Justin, what's up? Hi, um... I'll try to make this brief because I don't know how many of these calls we get, but uh, (laughs) I had last week watched a video from Kyle Kalinske about how people who are deprogrammed from the right should call in more to shows and let people know that how you've helped. Right. Yeah. Then he, um, I think he played a clip of one of my callers saying that we had deprogrammed him. Yeah. 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 So I felt I should do my part and call in and say. Thank you. <laughs> oh, okay. What, what, were, um, what were your beliefs that you were disabused of? Well, if I, well, the one thing I have written down that I feel really kind of angry, not so much angered me when I started moving out of my comfort zone, but I, I, I was a big listener of uh, Ben Shapiro, Stephen Crowder, Sargon of the Cod, you know, Carl Benjamin, yep. uh, uh, Stefan Molyneux, unfortunately. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess you could kind of see the path I was going down. Right. And one thing that I really, that really kind of angered me when I started listening to you, uh, Kyle, Sam, is that they, the right kind of creates this caricature of the left, of being these, like, people with, you know, forgive my language, you know, sticks up their butt, mm. uh, you know, not fun, they're racist towards, and I know this is going to, I don't know if this might sound weird to some, but, you know, the left is racist towards white people, and they kind of don't draw the line between, say, you and the pink-haired feminist that they love to rank on so much. Sure. And I think it's a a great thing because one person who did also help me out a lot was Destiny. Interesting. Wait, I have more on that. Here we go. I clicked the wrong video for you. on the show. I remember the study and I remember talking about it. And I remember 
particularly because of this reaction from him. Because as I was prepping that story, I was saying to myself, oh, this is going to deconvert a lot of people from right-wing beliefs. I remember, because he's right. One of the things that people on the right use is they talk about um, black crime statistics, and they talk about how, you know, they use that. They don't come out and say it, but oftentimes it's implied. They try to use that to be like, see, see, the problem is the damn minority. Okay, white people are wonderful, minorities are terrible. I didn't say that out loud, but I am harping away on how terrible the black crime statistics are. And I remember when I was prepping that story, and I was looking through the article, and it gives the exact numbers. Okay, here's the crime rate of undocumented immigrants, here's the crime rate of documented immigrants, and here's the crime rate of, crime rate of um, American citizens, native-born citizens, and... I think the order was native-born citizens are the worst, (laughs) and then you had undocumented immigrants were better than native citizens, and documented immigrants were the best in terms of they had the lowest crime rate. As I was reading that, I had that light bulb moment, and I was like, oh, this is one of those stories that's so powerful because it so directly refutes the narrative of, like, minority bad, that it may actually, on this story alone, it may actually change some people's minds, and it may start moving them in a further left direction. So I'm, I'm really happy about that because it shows my instinct in that moment of like, this is why this is such an important story to cover. My instinct in that moment was correct. But actually, the reason I'm talking about this is because I want to take it a step further. Because that's only half the argument. Only half the argument is, hey, immigrants have, you know, a lower crime rate. So maybe it's not like minorities are bad, like people on the right have been saying or just implying for all these years. The other part of the argument is, let's say for a second that the immigrant crime rate is slightly higher and the black crime rate is higher. I hope you're sitting down. You ready? I don't care. (laughs) You want to know why? Because that doesn't, people are individuals and I view people as individuals. So you don't craft policy to crack down on an entire group of people because you could say per capita or relatively speaking, there could be a higher crime rate in that community. That's not, that's not a reason to take that next step, which is a giant step, which is a fallacy, to then say, oh, well, then obviously we have to craft policy to be against that group and for the other group. Why? People are people. People are individuals. So if you have somebody from a group that statistically may commit more crime, but that individual has never committed a crime, then why are you collectively punishing them for what your perception of the entire group is as a whole? It never made any sense to me. So... It's an important fact because it refutes the right on their grounds, and it shows them, hey, wait a second, you're all concerned about high crime rates. Well, immigrants actually commit fewer crimes. Okay, so it refutes them on their own ground. But then the next step is, why why are we even having this conversation anyway? We don't do collective punishment. That's not what a democracy is supposed to be about. That's not what individualism is supposed to be about. We're supposed to be reasonable about this stuff. We're supposed to be objective about this stuff. We're supposed to understand that People are people, and they're complex, and they're different. And just because they're, they're not solely made up by their racial characteristics, so why are we pretending like this is a reasonable conversation, a rational conversation to have? So I just wanted to add that point to what he said, but I do remember the story that Justin is talking about, and I specifically remember when I was prepping it, I was going, this is a good one because this directly flies in the narrative. It flies in the face of the narrative of what many people on the right 
are saying. Um, and yeah, I love these stories. They make me happy because it shows that some good is happening out there. You know, some good. All I'm about, I don't really care too much about sides. I just care about getting people information and then also trying to push for some policy ideas that would make the world less shitty. <laughs> That's my philosophy. So what would make the world less shitty? I don't know. Um, we should probably legalize marijuana and stop locking people up because they're enjoying a substance and not hurting anybody. That would make the world less shitty. You know what else would make the world less shitty? Eliminating medical bankruptcies in the United States of America. We're the only developed country that has the concept of medical bankruptcies as a thing. We should get rid of that. Everybody should have health care. We should stop these unnecessary wars and killing people overseas. So if you actually care about just making the world slightly less shitty and you act in accordance with that, it turns out, hey, you can change people and, and turn them away from some pretty odious characters. And I'm happy about that. I really am. Because the fact of the matter is, and this is why guys like Steven Crowder and Ben Shapiro always piss me off to no end, is that if you actually take the time to go through what they're saying and like fact check them as they go, you'll find very quickly they're totally full of shit. They're totally full of shit. They do like what Glenn Beck did in the story we covered earlier in this show, where they like, they spin everything, they twist everything, they give a weird interpretation of something and act like it's objective. And it's like, no, you're not actually giving people a straight dope. You're giving your spin on it, the right-wing spin on it, and what you think you're supposed to say. And that's just the hackiest of hacky commentary. And I'm glad that there are a lot of people that are catching on. I'm glad that this is now a trend. And we know it's a thing that happens out there. And it's just a shame that, you know, certainly corporate media does not focus on. They love to do the scare stories. Like, oh, my God, the right-wing rabbit hole on YouTube and people are getting radicalized. Ah, be afraid. But they never tell you the other side of the story, which is that many people have been deconverted, deprogrammed, de-radicalized by the same method, <laughs> the same method, watching YouTube. So the answer is not censorship. The answer is bolstering the voices of people who are not arguing for incredibly odious and shitty beliefs. Call me crazy. Okay. We're done, baby. We are done. Everybody enjoy your 4th of July. Enjoy the rest of the day. I love y'all, and I'll talk to you next week. Peace.